I'd like for you to turn to the little book of Jude. It's the next to the last book in the Bible, so you'll find it over by Revelation. Beginning verse 14. And about these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with, mighty, with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause division, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. I think one reason why I like the Bible is because it always ends in a note of victory. Anybody who believes the Bible would have to be an incurable optimist because the Bible has the viewpoint that there is no situation over which one cannot triumph or have victory regardless of the situation, regardless of the obstacles or the problems. And nowhere is that more beautifully illustrated than in this little book of Jude. I don't suppose there is a greater condemnation of sin in any book that is found in this little book. It starts out in gloom and doom and ends up in doxology. It starts out describing these people who use the grace of God as an excuse for blatant immorality and even suggests that even in that there can be victory and there can be triumph. Now the book of Jude divides really into two sections. I mentioned this last week. The first section begins with his informing us of the dangers of the Christian life. He outlines those dangers. There's the danger of, of, uh, of an irreverence. That means that, that being a, a lack of fear of God, a withholding of honor that belongs to Him, and the lack of a sacredness or an understanding of the sacredness of human life. There's the danger of immorality, blatant, arrogant immorality that takes the laws of God and throws them in His face, a total disregard for any 
uh, standard of conduct, moral standard of conduct. Then there's the danger of subordination, that is, where people totally reject the Lord as the master of their life and the sole authority to whom they must account. The amazing thing about it is, is that these are dangers not found out there in the big bad world, but found within the church itself. So that he said there are people who've come in from the side door within the fellowship who are threatening to knock you off balance and, and to destroy your poise as a Christian. And then he gives us some instruction or informs us concerning the defense against these dangers. Now I could sum up the defense in three words, remember, recognize, and remain. That's what I want to do, as a matter of fact. God said to me one time, he said, if you could sum it up in three words, why would you spend 15000 then explaining it? Well, I'm going to give you the, uh, the three ideas to remember, to recognize, and remain, and tell you what that means. First of all, to remember. I want you to look at verse 17. And be sure and keep your New Testament open because we're going to look back to some verses that we read last week. But verse 17 begins like this. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And would you look at verse 5? He says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things. So he's just reminding them of something that they need to remember. Now, does that seem like a kind of an exaggeration to say they know all things anyway? I mean, nobody knows all things. I know some folks who think they do. I mean, they think that this word is an inspired verse meant for them. But nobody knows all things. That's not what he means. He's saying, in essence, I'm not about to tell you something you don't know. I'm just going to remind you something you already know. I'm not going to tell you something new. I'm just going to cause you to remember something old. He said that, the, that a real good definition of preaching is somebody reminding us of something we already know but just haven't done yet. It's amazing to me how many times the word remember appears in Scripture. I mean, over and over again, that word is there to cause us to look back and be reminded of something we already know. And I never cease to be amazed about the things we forget. It's always a, a mystery to me how some people can remember a dirty joke told them a year ago, can't remember a verse of Scripture they memorized last week. It seems to be something within the fallen nature of man to forget the things he needs to remember and remember the things he needs to forget. And why is he telling us, why is he reminding us of something that we have known for a long time? Because it no longer is taken seriously. We've kind of developed, he's saying, he said, you've kind of developed a kind of a nonchalantness to what you should take seriously, and you've become indifferent to that which you know to be true. I want to say two things about this reminder First of all, it is a warning from the past. And this warning from the past is found in verses 5, 6, and 7 because he gives us three illustrations of that warning from the past. The first illustration in verse 5 has to do with reminding them of the fact that they have been delivered, their people, their ancestors were delivered from the bondage of Egypt. 
Such privileged people were the Jews. And the reason why they had such high privilege only was, was only because of the love of God. It wasn't because of their culture, because they were surrounded by people who were much more sophisticated than they. It wasn't because they had such great prestige. They were just a little bitty nation squeezed in between the sea and other nations. They were really just slaves building the store cities of Egypt. And somebody said that if, if, if we were calling or going to develop some kind of people for ourselves, we would have called out the Egyptians. We would have never called out the Jews because the Egyptians' reputation was far wider and their prestige was far greater and their power was much greater than the Jews. But God loved these people and He gave them the high privilege of being His people. Now what He's saying is this, watch this. Not even privilege, high privilege, is, does, does that guarantee an immunity against the judgment of God? You may be the privileged people, and I suppose that most of us would say that Americans are the most privileged people in the world, but that doesn't guarantee immunity against the judgment of God. And the second illustration he uses there is the illustration of angels. And he said these angels had this domain of uh, a position of, of uh, glory and the domain of glory. And because of their rebellion, they were cast into the fire. What he's saying is this, is this, that not only does privilege not guarantee you immunity against the judgment of God, neither does position. I mean, you could have status and position within community or church, that doesn't guarantee you immunity against God's judgment. And then he uses an illustration of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now I have to confess that gave me a little bit of a problem. But Sodom and Gomorrah were these cities that were so wicked and so vile that God destroyed them in fire. He scorched the earth with them. Now how could it be that God would use Sodom and Gomorrah as a comparison with Israel? You can't compare Israel with Sodom and Gomorrah, can you? But as I read about this and studied it, I came to this conclusion. What God is saying is that I'm no respecter of persons. God abhors an unbelieving Israelite the same as He abhors an unbelieving Sodomite. Well, listen carefully. God judges an unbelieving church member the same as He judges an unbelieving sodomite. He's no respecter of persons. We need to remember that. Not only is it a warning from the past, it is a warning from prophecy. Now I want you to look at verse 4 with me, please. He's saying, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Skip over to verse 17, that's what it says. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, well, the fact that there was in this church these kinds of people, this was prophesied hundreds of years ago. It ought not to surprise you that stuff like this goes on in the church, that there is immorality among God's people, that there is irreverence, a lack of respect for God, that there is insubordination, people refusing the Lordship of Christ. I mean, that shouldn't surprise you, he's saying. 
I get a little comfort from that, not much, but some. Because I know some people whose faith is just wrecked because what they see going on in the church. I talked to a guy this week who said, as I shared with him the gospel of Christ, he said, immediately brought up hypocrites in the church. I said, that ought not to surprise you that that goes on in the church. I mean, he said the apostles talked about it, and he said, why? But long beforehand that was, that was prophesied, and what he's saying is this, that's no surprise to God. I mean, nobody's pulling any wool over God's eyes. Nobody's giving him a con job. He knows this goes on. He's not lost control. He'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. He'll deal with it, all right. You don't have to worry about that. Just remember the wool from from history and from from prophecy. Second word is the word recognize. Now, I want you to look at verse 19 with me. He says, these are the ones who cause division. Now, when he's talking about these, that pronoun is a reference to those people who've come in within the church that he's warning about, knocks us off balance and gets us, uh, you know, off track, out of sync. He said, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Now, it doesn't do much good to warn people of danger if you don't tell them what to look for or what to do about it. I mean, it doesn't do much good to tell a guy there's danger if you don't tell him what to look for how he can avoid it. I got a letter this week that blew me away. I don't know when I've ever gotten a letter that hurt my ego any more than the one I got. I mean, it just really, really wiped me out. I, one of the most discouraging things that I've ever received. I got this letter. It started out like this. Dear Sir, you're qualified for AARP. Now, now, for those of you who don't want that means, that's Associate, American Association of Retired People. I'm not that old, am I? I mean, give me a break. <laughs> Lewis Barker, not me. I mean, I'm not that old. And he went on in this letter to talk about all the privileges that were mine now that I'm ready for AARP. And I don't need that kind of encouragement. I mean, those, that kind of good news. You know, I've noticed that when you get old enough for AARP, you start getting all this literature about high blood pressure, and <laughs> loss of hair, and cancer, all that stuff. I mean, I get, you know, every, everywhere you look, you know, I'm, you know, Reader's Digest, all these magazines gives all these tests about how do you know if you got high blood pressure, shooting at me, you know. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a, the good news about all of it is, is that you had a, what, to, what to look for and uh, how to discover when you got high blood pressure or cancer and all that stuff and what to do about it. That's the good news. Now, it doesn't do any good for a man to write in this book that, that there are dangers to the Christian life if he, doesn't tell us, if he doesn't show us what to look for and what to do about it, and that's what he does. And he describes these people who have come, slipped into the church, who are causing the problems three ways in verse 19. He calls them, first of all, he says that they cause division. They, they cause strife. In another place, he says they're like waves that just stir up foam. They, they're always marking out lines saying, I'm on this side and you're on that side. And they cause division and strife. I mean, they're not peacemakers, they're troublemakers. 
I mean, they cause problems, they cause division when they say hello. I mean, everything they do causes strife. He says, these are the people to watch out for. And in verse 16, he further defines them with this, these words. He says that they are grumblers. Grumblers. Where it means fault find. In fact, the, the interesting thing about that word is it means the cooing of a dove. You ever heard a dove coo? Now, he, what he means is that, that these people who cause division, they don't come up to you and shout in, in, in angry words, loud voices. They just kind of, beneath the surface, behind the scenes, they just grumble and growl and complain. And the, you know, Moses had a round and round with some of those. You know where that, that grumbling that's found in the, book of, in, in the book of Exodus, you know where it started? The scripture says it started in the tent. There was grumbling in the tent. It started at home. So when these families would get together at night to eat their evening meal, you know, somebody was griping and complaining. Everybody was always negative and everybody was always critical. They'd invite neighbors over for pizza and the ball game, and it'd start again, just grumbling and complaining in the tent. And Paul and, and Jude says these are the people that cause the problem that gets you off balance. Second word. He says that they're worldly-minded. The word means natural instinct. It means sin, it means animal existence. It's a reference to people who are limited to the think to, to a thinking that is natural and not supernatural. You know what I'm saying? They understand the natural. They have no concept of the supernatural. They cannot communicate on a spiritual plane. Now they know price quotes and batting averages and political problems. They know how to communicate on that level. But they don't know how to communicate on a spiritual level. And they're within the church. They can't talk in terms of miracles because they don't know what it's like. They don't know what to talk about when you talk about answered prayer. And when you say we need to live by faith, they don't understand that at all because they live totally on a natural level. They think like the world and they act like the world. Do you know, you, you know anybody like that? And then thirdly, he says that they're devoid of the Spirit. What he means is they're not saved. Now listen to me carefully. Billy Graham says the greatest evangelistic field in the 20th century is the church. What he means is that we have people who come into the fellowship who do never, who, who've never encountered, who've never known personally Jesus Christ. And they enter into the fellowship, but they're not of the fellowship because they have never encountered Jesus Christ in a personal encounter. Jesus talked about these people. He said there are some sheep that crawl over the fence. They crawl over walls. He calls them thieves and robbers. And some, he said, enter the sheepfold through the, through the door. And then he says, I am the door. And what he's saying is this, that the only people who belong to the family of God are the people who come by Jesus and through Him. And he's saying that in this fellowship, in the church, Jude is saying, there are people who are a part of the fellowship, part of the group, but they have never come to know Christ, and they've not come into that group through Him. So there's no evidence of Christ on their life. Recognize them. The last word is remain. Now I want you to look with me, because I don't want you to miss this, to verse 21, 20 and 21. It says, 
But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now what he is not saying, listen to me carefully, our church has become somewhat ecumenical. I mean, it is literally becoming ecumenical. And that's a thrilling and wonderful thing that you have people in this, who come here to this church because it is important, it feels good to them, and they love to come. And we, we are thrilled by that. Um, we need to understand that some things that are unique to the Baptist belief, and one of them is this, that you cannot fall out of grace. That is unique to us, of course. And he is not saying that when he says, remain in the love of Christ, he is not saying that God might stop loving you. He's not saying that at all. If there is anything about the love of God in the Scripture, it's this, that God's love is limitless and eternal. And the only word that is used to describe the love of God is eternal love. He's not saying that God will stop loving you. Paul says unequivocally, there is nothing that shall separate us from the love of God. Nor is he saying that God, you might get God to love you more if you did certain things. He's not saying that either. Because the love of God is unconditional. And it is not possible, you know, if you live right and do the right stuff and all that kind of stuff, that, that God will love you more than He will love somebody else. That's not what He's saying. What He's saying is this. He's saying that you need to keep yourself in a position where God's love can be everything that He wants it to be in your life. He's saying that you need to keep yourself in a position with the kind of life you live where you can experience the love of God as the love of God was meant to be experienced. It is possible, he's saying, that's, that you can live such a way that you can get out from under the umbrella of the love of God in the experience of it. In fact, that word keep there means to fortify. It's like being in a fortress. And what he's saying is this, that if, I, if my life is of such quality, I can get into the fortress of God's love and I can experience His love daily as it ought to be experienced. The first person I think about as an illustration of this is the prodigal son. Now, when that prodigal son decided he wanted to go to Big D, leave Durant for the city, and he headed out to the far country, he got off out in the far country, did his father love him any less in the far country? I tell you, no. Did his father stop loving him? No, not at all. In fact, the love of his father grieved over him all the way to the far country. And in a human way, he probably loved him in a sense even greater in a sense. He, he grieved over him. But in a position where the love of his father could not be experienced as it ought to be experienced. Are you listening to me? I mean, even the prodigal son said, I can't experience my father's love here. i got to get up and go home to experience my father's love. Now the question this morning is this. 
Are you in a position this morning? Are you keeping yourself in a position? And that's the responsibility that's up to us. That's what we have to do. Are you keeping yourself in a position where you can experience the Father's love? Fact is, it is possible for us to live with such a disregard for God and His law to put ourselves to a, at a point where God cannot bless us. That's a fact. The sun is always shining. You just may not be in it. Um, let me tell you a story, and I'll quit with this story from my... That's good news for most of you. The guy asked me this week, he said, How long do you preach? About an hour? I said, No, it just seems, it just seems like it. <laughs> let, me, let me give you a story out of my, per, my own experience. I, my father was this wonderful guy. And he was a fine Christian man, but he, he's from the old school. He never, he never expressed any kind of love in any way. I can only remember one time where he ever told me he loved me. When I was in eighth grade, we had this fantastic basketball team. We were undefeated, and we were so good. We weren't good as we thought, but we were, we were so good that they scheduled a game, uh, our eighth grade game, team, to, to play the junior varsity of the high school. We called it the B team then. And, and it was a big event. I mean, it was like a scheduled game, and everybody in town was called, because we were undefeated. We had a fantastic eighth grade basketball team. I'd like to tell you I was a star, but I'm not far enough away from telling you that yet. <laughs> so, so we got into that game, and it was a war. I mean, it was a battle. And it came down to the end of that game, the last few seconds of that game, and a call by the referee. He cheated us out of the game. But <laughs> let, me, let me tell you, the, these, the, the officials of the game were the coaches of the high school team. Now, that'll tell you how it's going to come out. It came down to the last seconds, and there was a foul called that could have gone either way. And that high school player uh, sank both free throws, and they won the game. And I... And my teammates were furious. On the way home, we lived eight miles out in the country. My dad was driving along, taking me home. And I was acting. See, I, I acted like this all along, but I was acting much worse there because I was mad and I was swelled up like a toad and I was, I was furious. My dad tried to talk to me and I'd snap at him and I'd, I'd back, you know, I'd sass him. And there we'll forget it. About is a... Sleet started sleeting, and we were headed on this dirt road home. I was about four miles from the house, and my dad pulled over beside the road and said, Okay, get out. <laughs> and all of a sudden, that ball game didn't matter that much. I mean, I, he, said, he, said, he said, Get out. And I said, Huh? He said, Yeah, he said, Get out. And I'm thinking about that freezing rain outside there and four miles packing it by foot. And he said, Gerald, he said, you, you, you've been acting on a way that has just, you know, your mother and I can't tolerate anymore. He said, I don't want you in my house. He said, I don't want you around. You act like this. He said, I can't, I, I'm not going to put up with it. He said, if you're going to act like that, just get out. I'm going on home. You go wherever you want to. And I said, Dad, I'm sorry. I love you. I always get emotional. I wish I wouldn't. I said, Dad, I'm sorry. I love you. 
And he looked back at me, and that's what he said. He said, I love you too, Joe. It's the only time I ever remember him saying it. He said, I love you too. But he said, I'll tell you, the way you're acting, we can't have in our home. I said, let me stay, and it'll be just perfect from now on. It'll be just, <laughs> it'll be just fine. So he cranked up the car, and we went on home, and, and we par- he started to park the car. Our garage was separate from the house, so he pulled the- I had to go open the garage door, and he, he was pulling in, and I-, I shut the door, and we started in the house, and he put his hand on me, never did touch me, ever, except to whoop me a couple of times, which I never deserved, by the way. <laughs> and he-, he put his hand over on my shoulder, and this is what he said. He said, Gerald, we won't mention this to Mother. You know what he was saying? He was saying, everything is okay now. You're back in a place, in a position where I can love you as you ought to be loved. My question to you this morning is this. Is the quality of your life such that God's love and blessing can be what He wants and you need? Let's pray together. Our Father, now in this moment of truth, we pray for an honesty that will help us to come to terms with our relationship. If we've never come through Jesus Christ, help us to be willing to admit that. And if we are of such life that we're outside the experience of your abundant love, help us to repent of it. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now would you please, I'm going to invite you this morning to come accept Christ as your Savior. Oh, what love He has for you. And until you come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, you'll live and die outside His grace. If you've never come to know Jesus Christ by simple faith, trust, the surrender of your heart and life, like a little girl came in the early service, I knelt down and I said, what's all this about? This little girl said, I want to be saved. Maybe you need to come this morning and place your life in this church. Or there might be some of you who would be honest enough to say, the character and the conduct of my life is such that I cannot experience for myself the love of God. While we stand to sing, why don't you do something about that today? While we sing, you come on the first word.